Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Gateway, brought to you by the Northern Illinois University College of Business, where your future is without boundaries and our approach is too. I am joined, as always, with my incredible co-host, Dr. Biagio Palese. Hello, Biagio! Ciao a tutti, ciao a tutti. Welcome again. Very excited to be here today and listening to our great guest, Giancarlo. Perfect. So for this episode, Capturing Conflict, we will attempt to understand the impact technology is having on civil conflict around the world. News broadcasts are inundated with images of citizens clashing with police, government authorities, or invading occupants. How are we understanding these tumultuous events? What, what is truth? Is, is there a way to decipher fact from fiction in a time when unrest is pervasive? understanding the way we receive these stories is at the forefront of humanity. So to help us examine the rapidly evolving yet essential pursuit of modern journalism, The Gateway is proud to welcome Giancarlo Fiorello. Giancarlo is an investigator and trainer for Latin America at Bellingcat, which I think is one of the best resources and sources of journalism today. He is also a PhD candidate at the Center for Criminology and Sociolegal Studies at the University of Toronto, where his research focuses on protest policing and civil conflict. Giancarlo, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Perfect, perfect. So I want to jump right in here and I want to focus on, on you. And I know as a journalist and someone kind of focusing in this, most of the time you're not the center of the story, but I really want to start there. Why, why journalism? Why conflict? Why your PhD? Just why? Where are we at with that? Well, I sort of stumbled backwards into this. In fact, I I wouldn't call myself a journalist. I know that might sound weird because um, <laughs> a, a lot of the stuff we do is like I've pub you know I'll do research on an event, and then I'll write an article about it, and then I'll publish it on a website, and then that's kind of like a journalist uh, <laughs> work, right? Yeah, so it's a little bit weird. Um, but no, I'm I'm not. Uh, you know, I never set out to be a journalist. I, um, as I said, I don't consider the kind of work that I do journalism, or, or even more broadly at Bellingcat to be journalism. Um, and the reason I got into it was basically, as I said, I kind of stumbled into it backwards. Um, I started doing a PhD in 2014. Um, because like, a number of reasons, one of them was that I've, I don't, I've always enjoyed school. And mm -hmm. so, um, I figured, you know, why not give a PhD a, a shot? I, um, I'm originally from Venezuela. And so my master's research was on po policing in Venezuela. When I went back to uh, the University of Toronto, um, I was doing my, I, I'm doing my PhD in, in protest policing in Venezuela. And uh, at, that, at that time, starting at that time in 2014, I saw Bellingcat. I, I, I remember the Kickstarter campaign. I remember the discussions that were happening online. Uh, about this new and exciting way of doing research and sharing content, uh, you know, sharing content from sort of uh, um, uh, conflict zones all around the world. And I wanted to emulate that. So as I started my PhD project, I, I wanted to use the same kind of methods that Bellingcat was developing to conduct digital investigations. I, I worked um, for four years on a, on a project um, uh, 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 that was basically emulating Bellingcat. I never imagined that Bellingcat would ever be interested in me um, or that I would get a chance to work with them. I, it wasn't part of my plan at all. In 2018, I started to volunteer with them, again, really accidentally, not through any design of my own. And at the end of that year, I was offered a job uh, with Bellingcat, again, completely accidentally through no uh, design of my own. So yeah, I, I, I sort of stumbled into it. I mean, I'm really happy that I did. Um, but I never planned to be here. And so, um, you know, sometimes I look back and I think it's, yeah, I, I, that's, a, that's a perfect description of it. I just sort of stamp, stumbled backwards into, into where I am today. Some of the best things in life happen like that, John Carlos. So yeah. can, you, um, can you give us some, some background of, of what Bellingcat was doing differently? So, some just kind of general framework for, for some of our people that might be listening that have never heard of that stuff. Sure. So um, you know, so Bellingcat was born out of an initiative that began much earlier, a couple of years earlier, you know, around 20, 2010, 2011, 
um, around a website that was called the Brown Moses blog. So the founder of Bellingcat is a, a guy named Elliot Higgins. And back then he, this is again, back in 2010, 2011, uh, particularly at the beginning of the Arab Spring, um, Elliot, who is not a journalist, um, was spending a lot of time at home and he realized that there was a lot of footage coming out of conflict zones around the world, around you know, places like Syria, Libya, Ukraine, eventually into, uh, uh, you know, with the first, uh, with the invasion of Crimea. And uh, he realized that, again, on YouTube, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, there was just tons and tons and tons of footage coming out of these conflict zones. But hardly any of that footage was making it onto the evening news. So if you really wanted to know, like, what's actually happening in Syria today, you couldn't go to the news because uh, they didn't, they, they weren't reporting on, on, on that footage. And so, uh, slowly over time, Elliot, I eventually sort of began to realize, I think, that part of the reason why, why that was happening was because journalists at big outlets like CNN and, you know, the New York Times, they didn't really know where to find this footage. They didn't know how reliable it was. So, you know, you might see a video on Twitter from somebody who says this is from Syria this morning. And you would go, well, how do I know that? Like, how do I know it's from Syria? Where in Syria is this? How do I know it's from this morning? Maybe it's from two weeks ago, right? And so what Elliot and this blog, the Brown Moses blog started to do was to develop a methodology for working with visual materials from conflict zones to, to determine exactly when and where they were taken and essentially to watch these videos and these pictures really carefully and analyze them. So you could watch a video and you could determine exactly what kind of munition uh, had fallen on this on the city in, in, in Syria on that day, right? And you can gain all kinds of information from just watching these videos very carefully and 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 researching, you know, doing research online. And so um, that was that was relatively new, and and it was so new that it, sp it spawned this this a great deal of interest in this new methodology, this new way of doing things, to the point that in 2014 or by 2014 rather. Bellingcat had launched a Kickstarter campaign and it raised funds to be able to launch the website. And now, uh, many years later, we have uh, digital uh, uh, open source research units at the New York Times, there's one at the BBC, the Washington Post has one. So, you know, from the very humble beginnings, you know, back in 10, 2010, 2011, it was a very new thing. Now it's a field that's, you know, been spreading to major newsrooms all across the world. You you mentioned, uh, and the reason why I was so excited to to talk with you is is the idea of open source kind of research and, and investigation. Can you define really what that is, how how it does, and and maybe how it differs from what uh, the normal person like me watching CNN kind of kind of sees as as journalism within that? Sure. So um, open source research is. Uh, any research that you can do with information that's op that's openly available on the internet, that's freely available on the internet. So, all of you have an internet connection because you're you're you know listening <laughs> to this right now. Um, so you know about Wikipedia, you know about Google, you know about all kinds of websites where you can get information, including you know again visual information from conflict zones like YouTube and Twitter. And so, uh, the kind of research that we do overwhelmingly uses that kind of information, information that anybody can find online. So I always like to say that uh, the data that I use in my reports, um, I found, but also my mother could have found it, right? <laughs> if she had dedicated the time and if, you know, you have to know where to get, you know, where to look for, but it's there, right? There's a link, you can click on it and you can see it. Uh, that differs from what you might call more traditional journalism um, because um, that kind of journalism uses close to sources or can use close sources. And so you might read a report on CNN or whatever the Washington Post that says, you know, according to sources inside the Ministry of Defense, you know, this is what's happening, right? Or mm -hmm. the Washington Post spoke to a person familiar with the situation who said that the president had whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's really important uh, for democracy, uh, obviously, to be able to, you know, speak to people and have them tell you things that they're privy to and then for you to share them with the world. That's, that's good. And we should continue to do that. But again, the, the overwhelming majority of the research that we do at Bellingcat is, is in theory research that any one of you could do because again, we are just using our computers and, and, and information that's available on the open internet. Ross, yes, go right ahead. Thank you, Giancarlo, for, for explaining this to us. Uh, one thing that comes to my mind when it comes to this type of research is 
um, you know, the data collection process can be um, very like difficult to do and time consuming in the sense that you kind of need to be exhaustive and there is so much out there. So I was, the first question is how do you navigate among all the type of information uh, available and what kind of resources you guys look for uh, first? And also how do you guys assess kind of the veracity of uh, the footage that you are exposed to? How do you know that it's actually uh, like a, even a real video and not something that is simulated or modified by some something else just to convey a different misinformation, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you to help me with that second question because I'm going to forget about it by the time I answer the first. <laughs> I always do that. Uh, um, okay. So the first question was, how do you sort of navigate all the data? Like, how do you even, yeah. So it, it depends on, on the research question, it depends on what you're trying to do. So for example, you know, if I'm working on a project that's looking to see if there was an explosion, uh, you know, there's a report that a bridge was blown up in Ukraine, and we want to know if that's if that actually happened because it has implications for the war, right? I'm giving you a totally fictitious, okay? So then I would say, okay, well, how can I tell? How, how can I know if that bridge really was was destroyed, right? The first thing I would do is I would say, well, I know that there are satellite image providers online that can give you satellite images, right? And and some of these are free uh, and they're, they're very frequent. So one of them is called Sentinel Hub Playground. Uh, if you Google Sentinel Hub Playground, you click on a link and you can see satellite images from anywhere in the world, uh, certainly on a weekly basis, sometimes on a, on, a, on a daily basis. And they would show you if that bridge had, had been destroyed. So I would go to the location, you know, if I didn't know where it was, that's part of the research process, like where exactly is this bridge? I might go to Google Maps. I might look for all of the bridges that cross this particular river, right? I might make a list and I might check each one of them in turn. And so, um, you know, and then, and then I would see in the satellite imagery, yes or no, the bridge was destroyed, right? So if the claim is that the bridge was destroyed on Tuesday, I might get an image from Sunday and an image from Thursday. And if the two images are exactly the same, then I'll say, wait a minute, the bridge is still there. You can see it, it's right here. Here's a picture of it, right? So. It, uh, that's, you know, that's one example. Um, another example might be, I do a lot of research on, on uh, involving flight tracking. So, you know, you might tell me, I know that there is, uh, you know, an arms dealer who owns an airplane. And I think that airplane landed at an airport in Mexico last week sometime. Okay, so then you would go, all right. So I have the registration for the airplane and I have to think about how do I get information about airplanes that are landing in Mexico, Mexico City, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, from sort of experience, I would say, okay, well, there's a, there's a website called Flight Radar 24. It has a historical feature where you can move your camera to somewhere in the world. So it's like Google Maps, you can park it in front of, uh, or sorry, on top of like Mexico City, for example, and you can play back that airspace at any point in time, uh, like, you know, say over the last week. So you would just hit play, and it would show you all of the airplanes that were flying around that area at that time. So I would just like park my camera there and just like watch, um, you know, airplanes flying around. And I would make a list of each one, you know, to see which ones were landing in Mexico City. And I would check that list with the known registration of this, you know, supposed arms dealer. And then I would say, oh, yes, here's the airplane. I can see it landing. It landed at the Mexico City airport on Monday, last Monday at, at 3.30 p.m. And here's a screenshot and, you know, we can prove it, right? So the short answer is that, you know, how do you deal with this? You know, how do you deal with the data? I mean, it depends on what the question is, right? Um, one of the great things about not just Bellingcat, but the open source research community is that it's very helpful. So if I don't know where to get that kind of data, I can just ask on Twitter. Uh, or I can, you know, I can ask my colleagues, right? Or we have a Discord server that has 8,000 members now, and I can just go in there and say, hey, like, does anybody know, like, I have a question here. You know, I'm trying to see if this plane was in Mexico. Any suggestions? And just like random people will, will answer, you know, oh, you could try this, you could try that. So that's the great thing about the open source research community. It's very helpful. Uh, the second question was, I forgot. Uh, about the kind of the veracity of data. Oh, yeah. Is that like, how do you, how do you deal uh, with misinformation? But also sure. like kind of going on your first answer. Now I'm curious about, <laughs> uh, is there competition or who comes up with the scoops or kind of putting pressure of your data collection or your, or yeah. all this stuff that you have to do to, to come out with it. Yeah. I'll do the video one first and then I, I'll see if I, if I forget the second one. <laughs> we got your back, Chaco. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, all right. So, you know, with an image or a video, how do I, how do you know if it's an actual, like if it's a real picture, if it's a real video? 
So that is a big part of what we do. Um, and that's and broadly called the image verification process. And that process involves a couple of steps. Um, you know, very broadly, they are reverse image searching. So if I have a picture, I find a picture on Twitter, somebody says, hey, this is a picture of a police officer and they're beating up somebody in Toronto. And I took the picture outside my window and it happened, like it's just happening right now. I am just posting it on the internet. Like here, here it is. If I find that picture, I can do a reverse image search, again, using free tools like Google Image Search, Yandese, and I can see if that picture is already on the internet. And it might be that I find a link to a news article from seven years ago that has mm -hmm. that picture, right? And it says, you know, police officer in New York City beating up somebody, right? And so I'll say, wait a minute, this picture is recycled, right? Uh, you are either deliberately or, uh, uh, or otherwise, you know, lying, right? This is a picture from seven years ago, here's the proof. If you do a reverse image search and the picture is not found anywhere, uh, then it's possible that it is um, uh, a current picture and that it might be from Toronto. So then we move on to the other steps of the, of the image verification process, which are geolocation and chronolocation. And what they do respectively is allow you to determine precisely where a picture was taken and with more or less precision when it was taken. So basically I would look at the picture and I would just look at it for, you know, 10, 20, I don't know, 30 minutes, just like basically stare at it and then look for every single detail in the image, every single detail. Like what are the uniforms that the police officers are wearing? Like, are they, you know, what color are they? What boots are they wearing? Do they have patches? Like, what do the patches look like? What do the sidewalks look like? Are there trees in the picture? What kind of trees are there, right? Uh, can you see street signs? You know, what color are the street signs? What type of font is, the, is, on, the, is on the street sign? And then what you would do is you would take all of those clues and you would say, okay, so is are, are all of these things really, you know, indicative of Toronto, right? Sometimes you get lucky and the uniform patch on the police officers is NYPD. And so you go, okay, well, clearly this is the NYPD, right? But otherwise, you know, the hints are, 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 are not as clear sometimes or often, and, but, but you work from them, right? And the idea is that on something like Google Street View, you can find exactly where that picture was taken because Google Street View lets you drive around most of the world, or not most of the world, a lot of the world, including Toronto, which is an example that I'm giving right now. So I could theoretically drive on every street, drive through every street of Toronto on Google Street View until I find exactly that same spot. And I can compare every single element in the picture and say that's, that, that's where it was taken, right? Um, and then determining the time um, is a little bit of more of a complicated process. Usually, you know, the geolocation, you can get to, you can point to the spot where the person was standing. With chronolocation, you usually can't get to that precise reading, but you might be able to say, well, the picture was probably taken in the fall, or it was probably taken after, you know, Canada Day or something, right? Depending again on, on the clues that you see in the image. So, um, you know, the, the short version of that is that, is that you can um, uh, determine the veracity of an image, the authenticity of an image on the internet. That's part of the process that Bellingham helped develop. And that's, that's, that's why, um, you know, we've grown so much over the years and why other newsrooms um, or newsrooms rather have, have uh, emulated the work that we're doing, which is fantastic. That leads you to, this, to the other question, which I didn't forget, which is like, you know, do we see how do we see competition? Do we, you know, do we scoop each other? What happens when we get scooped? So one of the best things about Bellingcat is that we see ourselves and the open source research community really as a community. So we would rather, you know, collaborate with someone, work with someone on something than scoop them, right? I, I, we don't, you know, I, we don't really care too much about, you know, like, you know, be, like being secretive or being the first to, to do something, we would much rather get people to help us, you know, all of us working together, uh, because we really believe that if you work together, you can achieve more, right? By working together, more people develop the same skills that we developed, and that's good because the central philosophy of Bellingcat is that we want everybody to be able to do this kind of work, right? Um, because then we'll all be better informed, we'll be able to hold power to account, et cetera. So sometimes, you know, I've worked on projects where I've been scooped and it, does, it never feels good, right? Like if you spend three months working on something and then you wake up and it's like, ah, oh, the New York Times, they just publish exactly what I was going to publish. That doesn't feel great. Yeah. But, you know, you get over it like really quickly. Uh, and then also like we scoop people, like it's sort of give and take, right? Like I know I, we scooped, like I have friends at other organizations that will email me after we publish something and they're like, ah, oh, you guys, like... Uh, you know, that's, that's my last six weeks we're writing on this, like you scooped me, right? 
So there's no hard feelings. Um, we do it to people, they do it to us. And at the end, it all balances out, I think. Uh, but again, it's not that, you know, we, we're not so much concerned about being like, you know, the people to publish something. I think it's always better to collaborate, to be open, et cetera. So Giancarlo, as you're, I, I'm, my first real experience with at least hearing about open source researching um, was, well, we're, we're in DeKalb, Illinois, which is maybe a, like a stone's throw away from Kenosha, Wisconsin. And there are definitely some, some tragic events that happened there. And that evening, there, there were a lot of people out there trying to identify a very specific person that participated in, in some very tragic things. Um, how do you, in those instances, or whether it's Kenosha, whether it's what you're doing, whether it's international or Toronto, how do you go about the ethics of that and, and try, you know, trying to move quickly, get that information out there, help maybe find this person, stop this person, whatever it may be, while yeah. not doing it too quickly and, and potentially, you know, naming someone incorrectly, you know, how yeah. do you balance yeah. that? That's a really great question. So what the thing that scares me the most about the work is um, when I have to like say the guy in this picture, this is his name. Because ah. that that is because because if you're wrong, you're going to ruin someone's life potentially. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah like, com, you know, a, a sort of a slang term for that is like doxing. Right. Like if yes. you dox someone right now, mm -hmm. now you can dox like a mass shooter and it's like, OK, well, that's a public interest thing. And, you know, yeah, we, people, should, you know. Uh, that, but yeah. you could, yeah, but if you do it wrong, as you're saying, um, and then, you know, you ruin someone's life. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say, I mean, all of our work is produced at the highest possible standard of, mm -hmm. you know, we don't publish things that we're not sure about, right? We don't, yeah. like, it doesn't make it. The highest standard, I would say, comes in when we have to publish someone's name. Like, we really have to be a million percent sure. Um, and somebody is, is mentioning the Boston Marathon case. Yeah, that's probably the most famous example of an internet crowd saying, hey, we got the guy, and then it wasn't the guy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the same thing happened a lot during the Capitol riot where you had all these like uh, groups of open source researchers who were very enthusiastic, I'm sure really well-meaning, doxing people left and right on Twitter because, and this is gonna get to my point, they were doing this work publicly, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, somebody would say, oh, I think it's this guy, like, I think I found this Facebook page, I think maybe this is him, right? And then, you know, it would get retweeted and then and then suddenly he's got a million retweets and then, and then you know, the reply to the tweet is like, oh, actually, sorry, I made a mistake. I didn't mean to, you know, I, <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I was like 80% sure, right? But it's already too late because a million people, you know, it's gone viral. So yep. when we do that kind of work, we don't do it publicly, meaning we don't do it on Twitter threats. like. We don't we don't do like the step by step like oh maybe it's him it kind of looks like him oh no it's not him and then another tweet right so we do that internally I can talk to you about a case that, that I helped with um, from 2020, 2020. so one of our contributors uh, well he was he was with us for for a couple of months um, or maybe more than a couple of months is Robert Evans who some of you might know he's a what researcher up? yeah yeah okay Sorry. yeah he's he's very famous. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's for for sure the most famous person that has ever uh, worked at Bellingcat. Um, so Robert Evans was at a protest. He was covering a protest in Portland, and he was uh, somebody broke his finger with a baton. Uh, somebody, a, a far right activist, was attacking people, and he broke his finger with a baton. Robert recorded this person's face essentially uh, as the attack was happening, and uh, because it was a protest and there were tons of people recording. Uh, the event, we had lots of footage. We had like dozens of hours, potentially hundreds of hours of footage from this protest. And I don't know how many pictures, right? So as soon as this person broke, you know, attacked Robert Evans and a couple of other people at this protest, we got to work, right? And so what we did was we found, we looked for every single picture that we could get from this protest, every single video that we could get from this protest, because at the moment that this man was hitting Robert Evans, he, his face was covered, if I'm not mistaken. But we thought, but if we see him at another point in the protest, maybe later or earlier, maybe he took his mask off for a second to like get a drink of water or something, right? Uh, he was covered in tattoos. Uh, and so when he was hitting Robert, like and we could see he had tattoos. So that was perfect because, you know, maybe his face was uncovered, but we could match the tattoos. And that's effectively, effectively what happened. Um, we had a thread where we on Twitter were asking people to send us pictures of, 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 
uh, from the protests, right? Uh, and eventually there was an open source researcher who found his Facebook page, but they did the correct thing, which is that they DM'd us and they said, look, I think I have this person. I know it's not proper form to like just put it out there. So I'm DMing you on Twitter. I think it's him. What do you think? We checked it. We triple checked. We quadruple checked it. And only once we were sure that it was this person that we named them and we say, this is the guy, right? And we only were sure because he had multiple tattoos that we matched, right? So it wasn't like, oh, you know, like the nose is the same or like the eyebrow kind of, it's, it wasn't like that. It was like, no, he's got multiple tattoos. Like this is clearly the same person. So that kind of work is really uh, serious. Not that our other work isn't serious. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very delicate and we do it uh, uh, particularly deliberately in private and we only ever publish a name when we are beyond sure that it's the, the correct uh, name. So, Janka, as you're, I'm going to pivot now to to kind of where your your research is coming and, and policing protests, all of that stuff. The 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 tools you're talking about, we all as as like you said, people with an internet connection can utilize. The the things you're talking about are almost well, they are Big Brother. You're using those things, watching that stuff, and and this is just citizens using that. How, how does that translate when it goes to governments, you know, large authorities, things like that stuff? And what's your opinion? Is that scary? Is that just what we have to deal with? You get kind of what I. It's a broad topic, yeah. but that that seems yeah. like already a lot, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know. Yeah, that's a good question. So I'll give you an example. Um, Clearview AI, I'm sure you, maybe you've heard about that. Have you heard about Clearview? Does that ring a bell? No, so, no, give it more. So Clearview AI is a, is a famous uh, company because they, the, they have what's probably the most powerful facial recognition software on the planet, right? Okay. So uh, if you give Clearview AI a picture of somebody, they will give you their LinkedIn, like their LinkedIn page or Facebook like a MySpace picture from 20 years ago that is still up on the internet somewhere. Like it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's an insanely powerful tool. Uh, it's, it's routinely used by, by governments and police agencies, right? So mm -hmm. we don't have access, access to that. Um, there's all kinds of ethical considerations about you know, privacy, et cetera, um, that are, that are very, very well founded. In fact, uh, don't quote me, uh, uh, but I think uh, the Privacy Commission of Canada banned law enforcement agencies in Canada from using Clearview AI. I, I believe that's wow. true, yeah. but just double check. Mm -hmm. um, because again, it's a, it's a hyper powerful tool and, 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 and we our societies are still grappling with the idea of like, what does it mean that all of our lives are online? Does that mean that the police can get access to them whenever they want? Is there such a thing as privacy on the internet? These are difficult questions. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, what we do is, uh, is yeah, I think uh, as you're saying, it's, it's sort of like, you know, we have limits, obviously, uh, not just ethical, but also uh, technological, right? Like we have the technology that, as you say, everyone does, right? So like a mm -hmm. reverse image search, right? Uh, if we have to do facial recognition, um, we, we do, we use a tool called PIMIS, which is again, a website that you can go to PIMIS.com and it's a fairly powerful um, image recognition tool, uh, sorry, facial recognition tool. But that's completely different from what governments have access to, right? Mm -hmm. Another example is satellite imagery. So we use Google Earth, which again is free and everyone can use. We use Sentinel Hub, which again is free and everyone can use. We do have a subscription to a commercial satellite service called Planet, Planet Labs, and that we do pay for. We still consider that to be open source because it's on the internet and, and in theory, somebody with, with money would be able to buy it. Mm -hmm. And so they provide us with it, satellite imagery um, that, is, uh, that is really good. Now, there's also military satellites that are like top secret that we don't have access to because nobody does. <laughs> and they, you know, they can take like high, like super high resolution video. They can do things that I can't even imagine, right? Like science fiction sort of stuff, right? <laughs> so that's like, so that's another thing, right? So it's the same idea with like the, you know, the clear view AI, like hyper powerful kind of like research tools. Governments are out there doing their thing. Police are out there doing their thing. We're, we're on this side with like the citizen journalists and the activists trying to do our thing as well. So we, there might be some overlap in the tools that we use because they're also gonna be using free stuff, but there's no overlap with like, you know, uh, you know military grades, you know, satellites and that, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, Ross, I, I yeah, did have like kind of follow up question that kind of goes on uh, 
kind of Giancarlo probably answered already a little bit of it. Uh, is about like what do you think about because because I'm seeing like you investing a lot of time in in gathering your sources, in analyzing them, or looking at footages. So do you see AI uh, in general to be a something that brings uh, helps you in your work or facilitate your work or speed up your work or do you see also like the downside of it as you say like you know the ethics implication or sometimes like uh giving the wrong results uh because maybe the training models are not used to get the type of subject sure. uh stuff like that what what is your thoughts on that yeah so you know yeah personally yeah, I did allude to this earlier. I think we're still we as again as societies are grappling with these questions largely, right? Like we don't, I don't think we have answers, all the answers to questions like, you know, should people have access to facial recognition tools, right? Like for example, PIMI is that something that we use sometimes? Uh, you know, again, like whenever we need to find somebody, we'll check PIMIs, right? But there's open source research out there who so might say, well, no, that's a that's a violation of privacy because PIMIs is probably scooping data from all kinds of websites, and like ethically, that's you know, I'm not comfortable with that, right? Why is that? Well, because people have different opinions about different things, right? Um, now, on the other hand, when we get a hit on something like PIMIs, that's great. Like that helps us to to do our research. Another example, you know, you mentioned AI and and sort of like automated processes. When I was talking about the uh, the example of the guy who broke, uh, who was hitting Robert Evans, who hit him with this baton, um, I mentioned that we had like dozens of hours of video, right? So one way to check if this guy was in any of the footage was to like physically like watch dozens of hours of video. That's like the old way of doing it, I guess. And you know, we we might have done that if if we were I don't know ten years in the past. Uh, but there are tools now. Um, for example, Microsoft Azure. Um, has a platform called the Video Indexer, and it's free. I think you get like a thousand hours or something of video that you can process, and then you have to pay. But basically, you just create an account. It's it's a Microsoft product. It's free, and what you do is you give it all the videos or all the pictures that you want, and what it will do is it will it will watch all of the videos, and it will tell you this guy is in minute three fifty seven in this video, and also he's in minute eleven. And in mm. hour 16 of that other video, right? Now, if any of you have, I think app, I've never used an Apple product. I, I'm an Android slash PC person. Uh, Google Photos does the same thing. If any of you have, and I, I suspect Apple Photos or whatever the equivalent is, uh, does the same thing as well. If you have Google Photos, go into your Google Photos and, and, and notice that Google has found your face in many pictures that you've taken, many videos that you've taken. It's done that automatically. So, in that case that I'm describing, the Robert Evans case, um, that was super helpful because we we didn't have to watch you know 60 hours of video, we just left it running overnight, and then the video indexers did it by itself. So that's that's incredible. Like that's you know ethically, you know, should that technology exist? I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe not. I, I don't know. But in that case, it was really useful, and I can imagine other cases where it may be really useful as well in identifying in single individuals and crowds. Because because like. I, yeah, one of the things I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about news and stuff like that is kind of the timeliness of the news. So if you don't have those kind of tools, as you said, either you have like 100 employees or you can crowdsource in open source probably, but but still it will take much longer than a machine being able to analyze, as you said, while while you're sleeping, right? So it's, yeah, it's it's always, as you said, a interesting trade-off between, you know, the good side and yeah, I, I feel a lot like I'm kind of old school, you know, I don't know, it feels weird to say because I'm, I'm only 35 and, you know, but I, I feel ancient compared to like some of the, like some of my colleagues, certainly who are like 10 years younger than me. Uh, but I feel like, so I do a lot of stuff by hand still, right? So I would, I, sometimes when I let, like, for example, when I let this video indexer, like watch the videos until I, I wonder like, well, did he, did it catch all of them? Like, are there mm. frames where the thing didn't work properly and he and he was, you know, you could you could see him, but then the video index didn't work. So um, sometimes we get approached by people who are really well-intentioned and they're really eager to try to help. And, and they say things like, I'm going to give you a fictitious example. Uh, they say something like, I'm going to, you know, I want to create an algorithm that like automatically geolocates an image. So if mm. I give you a picture, it's going to tell you like, you know, the possible areas where it is. And with that kind of stuff, again, I feel old school and I feel like, I don't know, like I kind of want to do it myself just to be sure. 
and there are some things, as you're saying, that, that can be crowdsourced, like geolocation, for example. So that's something that we often do. We'll put up a picture and we'll say, we don't know where this was taken. Can you help us? And sometimes we'll get people who say, oh yeah, that's the park in front of my house. Like I know that immediately, like I can geolocate that picture in three seconds because I'm looking out the window and I can see it, right? I mean, that's a very extreme example. But, but some tasks can be geolocated. And so like the best AI, I don't know, like I, I don't know if that there's an AI that's better than like, you know, a thousand human brains that are like working towards the same goal. I don't know, maybe in five years or 10 years, that won't be the case, but who knows? So Giancarlo, you, you, you're coming from, and, and your, your bio is talking about Latin America, looking at that stuff. What is, what does that work in, entail specifically? I know you mentioned Venezuela and all those things. That seems like a very um, important, but very uh, intense job in at least kind of area of the world. Is that, is that something that you still spend a lot of time doing? Um, yeah, so, uh, be, so yes, my, I mean, I, I, my, my PhD um, project is, 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 as I said, on, on Venezuela. So in that sense, I'm still, I'm always working on it until I'm done. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also always on the lookout for projects. In fact, I have one right now that's starting up um, involving Venezuela. Um, one of the great things about Bellingcat is that we've developed networks, um, or rather we've networked with, uh, with organizations around the world, including Latin America. So we have partners um, around the world with whom we work occasionally. And it's always a pleasure to work with them. I'm thinking specifically of Cero Setenta, which is um, a Colombian uh, digital media organization based out of Bogota. And so um, an example of a project that I might do in Venezuela, I'm sorry, in Latin America, might might begin with a partner at Cero Setenta or mm-hmm. at another organization saying, hey, Giancarlo, how's it going? We haven't talked in a while, but there was a protest here a couple of weeks ago and someone was killed and we have a bunch of video and we're wondering if we can work on it together, right? Like, can you help us out maybe, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what's that, you know? And so um, we do that often. And um, that's one of my favorite types of projects to work on, the ones that are collaborative with partners in Latin America. Um, and so the, I, I, you know, as I've, as I've, as I've, uh, focused on other areas in Bellingcat because it is true that when I started, I was focusing exclusively on Latin America. But as I began to sort of branch out, just because we're a small organization and, mm-hmm. and you know we need to focus, um, the 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 partnership model has become more and more important. So that's something that I'm I'm uh, as I said, I'm always eager to participate in and something that I'd like to see grow uh, in the future. With with some of those those projects that you're working on, I'm I'm thinking specifically in Latin America, and, and it might be a little bit of a stereotype, but I, I think you're you're going after um, powerful people, people with resources, people, and, and and again all around the world. A lot of the stuff you're doing is that something that, as a researcher and as someone who will at one point probably have their name attached to something online, is that something that you have to think about and as you're working on specific stories or is that kind of in the background? No, yeah, that's that's uh, something we think about often. So, you know, I think the, the most um, the clearest example of that is is the the Russian investigations team, right? So Bellingcat has published a number of reports that um, implicate the Kremlin, including you know President Putin, and things like assassination attempts abroad, right? So most famously, the Skripal investigation. I mean, the the MH17 investigation that determined mm-hmm. that MH17 had been shot down by a, a, a Buk missile launcher that was brought to Ukraine by by the Russian military, right? Like directly implicating the Russian army in the murder yeah. of. 298, I think it was, innocent mm-hmm. people. Uh, the Skripal poisoning investigation that also involved the, 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 the killing of a, of a person and the near killing of, um, of Skripal and, and Sergei Skripal and his daughter, implicating naming the, the GRU agents who, who were sent to Ukraine by the Kremlin, to, I'm sorry, who were sent to the UK by the Kremlin to, to carry out that assassination. And then most recently, the Navalny investigation, which again, implicated by name the FSB officers who were tasked with uh, t- trailing and attempting to murder Alexei Navalny, who's a, a political figure in, in Russia, an opposition political figure. So in other words, like the, you know, the Kremlin and, and President Putin in particular uh, don't like us, right? And that's not a good, um, I mean, 
it's good that they don't like us because it means we're, we're doing, you know, we're doing a good job. But, you know, you don't, ideally, you wouldn't want to have the Kremlin as your enemy or, or as like somebody who <laughs> doesn't like you because they have a lot of resources that you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we take security very seriously, um, in particular, digital security. So I should say that none of us is in Russia. Just to give you the example of Russia, we don't have any staff in Russia. We, I, I, we would never go to Russia on vacation, for example. Like, I'm never going to be able to go there. Mm. Um, and um, and um, um, so, so, you know, that's something that we take into consideration. Even like transiting through certain mm -hmm. countries might be something that we'd have to consider. So, you know, would I go to Venezuela? Maybe, but Venezuela is very close to Russia. So, you know, like theoretically, if I got arrested there, I could get extradited to Russia really quickly, right? So that, so those are considerations that we take. Um, digitally, we're often under attack. Uh, and that's mm. that's where the primary kind of vector of attack is against us um, is digital, like, you know, spear phishing attacks. So we'll get like emails that look like they're from Google, for example, that they look like they're from Twitter. But no, they're designed to disguise. And if you click on the link to recover your password, supposedly you end up clicking on something that like puts a virus in your computer or gives away your credentials. Uh, and some of those attacks have been uh, linked to to agent, you know, to entities that are connected to to the Russian government. So, so yeah, so you know, this is something that we do think about um, often. Um, yeah, depending on where I go, you know, we haven't traveled in two years because of COVID, but I used to travel a lot in Latin America, and yeah, like sometimes I'd be like, you know, looking around my hotel, like trying to make sure that I don't know there weren't any cameras around, because yeah, it's something that you have to consider. As you as you're working on your PhD and kind of moving through all this and, and having a, a very large portfolio of experiences, what is what's kind of your next step? What's your dream job? What's something that you wanna wanna be doing? Um, or is this it? And you're like, hey, I'm just I'm just enjoying it. Yeah. So I would say not to discourage anyone here who might want to consider graduate school. So I, I, let me, I'll say two things. <laughs> and are most people undergraduates here or? The majority, yeah, but go for it. Say it, we, we want the truth, so it's say a, it. <laughs> so, you know, I, it, yeah, not to discourage anybody. So I'll, I'll say that I value the experiences that I've gained in graduate school, both at the master's level and certainly in the PhD level. I'll tell you that um, the my work benefits tremendously from the knowledge and the experience that I've gained as, as a graduate student. So like the ability to find information, process it, condense it, and then write it in a report and to also like be critically analyzing it at every step. That's something that I learned in grad school. And if I didn't have that experience, I don't know that I could do this job. I just wouldn't have that. Right. So I, I don't regret going to grad school. Uh, uh, having said that, I, I, there are things about academia that I don't like. Um, for example, I always felt like the academic writing process is something that I didn't enjoy. I feel like in my experience, it's sort of rigor, not rigorous, that's the wrong word. It's very um, inflexible. Uh, so I always felt like I had to write things in a particular way because that's what the journal wanted. And that's how like everyone writes a journal article and I didn't really appreciate that. Um, and also I, I always felt like if I write something academically, I don't know, like five people will read it maybe including the three reviewers at the journal and then that's it. And so, I, I don't know, it, to me, that part of academia, I never really enjoy. Like the, the, the fact that you're potentially spending all this time thinking about something, putting out this uh, article that takes a long time to write and then like maybe nobody reads it. On the other hand, when I'm applying that same kind of uh, expertise and, and knowledge to writing a, an article for Bellingcat, then suddenly I feel like I'm having a much bigger impact potentially on the world, right? So I'm publishing something that's clarifying a situation that's happening right now. It's answering questions that people have at the moment, right? And it's reaching a broader audience. So I really do like that. So I guess that's my way of saying, I mean, definitely Bellingcat is, is my dream job. I've never, I've never had a job that was as amazing as this in, in, in lots of different ways. I get to travel, you know, with COVID, um, before COVID I did, and hopefully after as well. Uh, I meet like fascinating people all across the world. I get to teach also, because Bellingcat teaches uh, seminars a lot and teaching is probably my favorite thing to do. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't be happier here. And, I, and I, I'm just, I realized that I'm just so incredibly lucky because again, I didn't plan to come here. So if I had made a plan to get to this point, I don't think it, I could have designed a, a plan to do so, right? Like, as you said, uh, Russ, like sometimes the best things in life happen when you don't plan for them. 
Um, going forward, I, I like the idea of having a PhD and having like one foot on each side. Like I, mm-hmm. I like I love the ability to like engage with universities more, maybe still publish academically occasionally based on the work that I'm doing at, at Bellingcat. Um, but I don't think I, you know, I don't think I would quit this work to go into academia. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, if I could look into the future in 10 years, I'll probably, I hope I'm still here uh, at Bellingcat. Uh, uh, but if not, I'd be doing something very similar um, to this. Uh, certainly not academia, I think. Thank you. Now, we, we do have a, a lot of listeners that, that are on the verge of starting careers in, in all different backgrounds within this stuff. Um, what's, what's some advice you would give, regardless of modality or medium or, or background, what would you give for, for people starting out in, in a career and, and kind of how to, how to be successful? Because I, I will say you're, you're very impressive. And, and I think well, I know it's taken, a, it's taken a lot of work. So, you know, it's not just something that's automatic. It's weird to hear somebody say that. Uh, I mean, thank you so much. It's very kind of you, but I don't, I don't know. It's, it's uh, yeah, you'll have the, you know, I'm sure maybe you've already had it. Like the experience of somebody saying like, oh yeah, like you're successful. And you're like, oh, I don't feel like it. Like I lost my keys this morning. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like, a, like I'm just stumbling around uh, uh, life. Like, uh, like everyone else's um, advice, you know, advice for a young person getting started. I would say, um, I would say, you know, don't, don't conform. That sounds like such an old person's thing to say, but, but by that, I mean, um, there are, there's things that are unique to you that are precisely what will make you interesting to an employer in the future. And you might not know who that employer is. You might never have heard of them, but just like the things that make you an individual, the things that you think maybe are weird about you your hobbies, your interests, um, those things are unique to you. No one else has that. So that makes you like really marketable, right? Now the trick is to figure out like, how do I market, you know, like my obsession with video games or something like that, right? Uh, But I had an obsession with news from Venezuela, right? Like that's a weird hobby to have, right? Um, and, and, And I turned that into a blog. And so that obsessiveness, fueled my interest in like every day writing news about like what's happening in Venezuela. And it was because I did that for four years that Bellingcat found me, that a researcher at Bellingcat found my website. They said, oh my God, this guy's been writing about news from Venezuela for four years. Let me email him because he seems like he might be an expert on Venezuelan news, right? Whether or not I was is, is debatable, but, uh, but, but you see what I'm trying to say? Like I mm-hmm. had this weird kind of niche interest that like nobody else that I knew was interested in news in general about Venezuela and then to put it on a website, right? So, um, you know, yeah, the, the older I've gotten, the more I realized like the things that are unique to me that are like weird about me, like quirky about me, those are my best qualities because no one else has that combination of things. So, so whatever it is that you do that you think is interesting and maybe you're shy about it because like no one else is into it, like lean heavily into that, like find a way to share that with the world because people are going to take notice and they're going to say, wow, that's a really cool thing that you do. Um, And another piece of advice would be, um, I don't know, to just, um, oh, here's a good one. So if uh, you're on undergrad, so you're probably like like mid twenties, early twenties, maybe. Yeah, that tends to be normal. Yep. So yeah, so for some reason, I don't know if you have this experience, but like I remember at that age being told by like my parents and like people older me, they would say things like, oh, you know, like you have to wait, like things don't just happen quickly. Like you have to put in work. And somehow when I was 21, 22, 23, I thought like, oh, that just means I have to wait six months or that just means I have to wait a year, right? So like, I'm going to get a career. So I just have to wait like six months because people are telling me to wait, like things take time. So in six months, like my, my scale of like how long things take was way off. And that cost me a lot of frustration. And I felt like a failure, like throughout all of my twenties, like into my early thirties. Cause I was like, where's my thing? Like, I'm not, I've, I've been fired from jobs. I've been unemployed for long periods of time. So I just felt like I'm not clicking. Like I missed my boat. But then I realized like, you know, I, st- I only started working at Bellingham when I was like 32, 33. Right. And I was like, mm. oh, this is it. Like it took 10 years. Like that's what they, that's what they meant. Like when I was, you know, it takes time, like it's a decade is, is time. So don't feel discouraged if you're about that age, mid twenties, late twenties, early thirties, and you feel like things aren't clicking. It's not too late. You just got to keep waiting, you know, keep working hard, 
keep doing your thing. If it takes time, it might take a decade or more than a decade. And, and that's just the way that life is. So don't give up. Giancarlo, that, that is absolutely amazing. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with one, one question here. And, and it might be it might be something that you're like, eh, I've already I've already done it all. But is there a, a country or kind of an organization, something that you'd like to look into or, or do a project in? And just metaphorically, like, oh, I'd really like to look at Australia and I haven't had that that opportunity. Oh, yeah. Is there one that you're you're kind of still targeting and hoping it comes along? Yeah, that's an interesting one. So I've always, so being from Venezuela, my research project at the PhD level focuses on policing in Venezuela. And kind of like my white whale has also has always been like the Venezuelan government. Like I'd love to be able to work on a project that like, you know, calls attention to a practice that the Venezuelan government is engaged in that is corrupt or that is causing, you know, environmental harm or that is somehow, you know, uh, negatively impacting the people of Venezuela. Uh, kind of like the investigations that, that we do on Russia and, and another government, right? So, so that's always been like my personal goal to be, I'm always kind of on the lookout for like a project that would potentially, as I said, help me call attention to something that the government's doing that's terrible. I haven't done that, I think. I don't think I've done it uh, for Venezuela at Bellingcat. So yeah, so that's, uh, that's something I'm always, uh, as I say, on the lookout for, yeah. Perfect. Well, Giancarlo, this was absolutely intriguing and interesting. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. I, um, again, every time I have these conversations, it, it always goes in so many different ways and I just find it to be absolutely thrilling. So thank you so much for your time. Everyone listening, make sure to subscribe to The Gateway on any of the podcast platforms. We are there. You can find us on all of them, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcasts from. Biagio, as always, thank you for being my co-host and being here today thank you thank you to be here and i have to say i agree with the ross doing a phd and be like full-time working like the job that you're doing i i did the phd i wasn't working and still was super stressful and i i have to agree it's very impressive so best of luck with your future and thank Thanks. you for being with us thank you i don't recommend working full-time and doing the phd so <laughs> don't do it. but anyways I but, agree. but thank you so much for uh, for the invitation it was a, a real pleasure thank you Thanks for being here, everyone. Thanks for listening and have a great rest of your day.